Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. Uh, I'm uh, in the studios, the lovely studios of Yale University. Uh, I am uh, about to talk to David Galerinter, uh, the author of eight books and a professor of computer science at Yale and a lot more besides. Uh, his newest book uh, is The Tides of Mind, Uncovering the Spectrum of Consciousness. We're going to have a conversation about consciousness uh, to begin with, uh, a favorite topic of mine anyway. We also just figured out this is so strange. Not only do we graduate from this university in the same year, we were in the same residential college, which is like what, 430 people, but we would have been, you know, we should have known each other. It is remarkable. I mean, we must have, we must have been four years, 20 feet from each other. Exactly. You, like you, you must have hung out with smarter people. <laughs> I, uh, I doubt that. But uh, yeah, as I said, my girlfriend was in a college across town, so... So, main girlfriend, major yeah, girlfriend. Major girlfriend. All right. Yeah. So um, I do want to start start out talking uh, about consciousness and philosophy of mind. Um, I guess maybe the the way that I would begin is by saying that you uh, ordin- ordinarily would identify as the person coming at this from a very, very scientific bent, not only a scientific bent, but from the world of computers. In many respects, this book reads almost as though it were written by somebody from the humanities uh, arguing against uh, a, a scientific, a purely scientific way th- of thinking about consciousness. Respond to that. Well, I got into computer science in a sense to do that deliberately and into uh, AI. My, my background and training as an undergraduate and back to high school were in the arts and humanities. Uh, I, I loved software. Software has a kind of uh, obsessive qualities are building it and it and, fun. You keep doing it. But I always uh, figured, I always thought, and I still do, that computing could use uh, uh, a shot of air from the outside, uh, from a more general, from a less narrowly focused technical and technological perspective. And I certainly can't do that all by myself. I mean, it would take loads of people to do it. And there are not as many as there should be, but I think it's good for the field to have a, at least a little. Yeah, so this this is a book which weaves in uh, references. It doesn't weave in. It's saturated in, in references uh, to, to poets like Wordsworth and Keats, uh, to, to painters like, like Van Gogh, uh, to, to composers like Schubert. I mean, th- this is a book that really uses the arts as a way of thinking uh, about the mind. And, and, well, I mean, let's start there for a second. So, so I, could read a, I could read a book by Patricia Churchland and not, uh, about consciousness and ra- not write, run into this uh, kind of rich liberal arts thinking. So, so tell me about why it's there for you. I learned about the mind. The first serious thinking about the mind I ever read was in Wordsworth. I've never read a sharper philosopher of mind, uh, research psychologist or uh, neuroscientist for that matter, than Wordsworth. Um, Of course, it was uh, something of a fad among the romantic poets uh, painters in Germany as well as England, especially in England, though, 
and Wordsworth more than anybody, to think about how the mind worked, to think about thinking. Um, they did it so beautifully and so deeply, um, so thoroughly, uh, and they expressed themselves so beautifully and effectively and memorably that uh, they stored up material to last us centuries. I, I, I think Wordsworth said far more than we have uh, fully understood, and I think the field of cognitive studies, cognitive science, neuroscience is is out of its mind not to pay more attention to this rich, extraordinary storehouse of material. Well, some of this is – so, yeah, a lot of your questions have to do with artificial intelligence. To what degree could something created uh, begin to mirror what we call the mind? But I think part of your argument is that a lot of the people who think about this, who, who have the so-called computational model uh, of the mind, of consciousness, um, are thinking about consciousness as a single unmoving thing, uh, whereas one of the first arguments and maybe the primary your, uh, argument you make in the book is that our mind, our consciousness uh, is fluctuating uh, all day long, moving in and out of different states, ranging from uh, this kind of up-focused Apollonian uh, uh, state that, that we associate maybe with early wakefulness that's very logical uh, and, and focused on, uh, on, on pragmatic questions, uh, down to low focus, which is not the pejorative term it might sound, but, but probably the most poetic and free associative state. Uh, say, say some more about that. Uh, right. It's um, a simple thesis that has um, held my attention for years and years, and I've never really heard it effectively refuted, uh, which is that our minds are – the quality of consciousness moves on a spectrum from the sharply focused end uh, to, uh, as you call it, low focus – uh, the sharply focused end, we're apt to put thoughts together in a logical, uh, rational um, way in the, in, the, in the classical sense of logic and rationality and uh, classic argumentation and proof. As we move lower focus, our minds become more flexible and instead of arranging thoughts in a strictly logical way, we start to allow association and uh, chance rememberings to play more of a part. And finally, when we get to the bottom, our minds, we're putting thoughts together in a way that looks like free association, uh, where one thought suggests the next, not for any logical reason, not because we're searching for a logical conclusion, but because of an overlap in mood or ambiance or characters or some sort of incidental thing. And uh, there are clear patterns, uh, just as you say, we tend to need a lot of energy for high-focus thought. Uh, when we wake up in the morning, we tend to be at our higher focus uh, uh, point in the spectrum, and we tend to do mathematical and analytical things better when we've got a lot of energy. And for most people, that's in the morning, although people, have, people differ on that. But as we move through the day, as we use energy, we tend to move lower in the spectrum. There's actually a, a bump, an oscillation where we move down, then we move up again a little bit, and then we move down. But at the close of the day, we're moving steadily lower and lower, and our thoughts are, are becoming less and less logical. That doesn't mean less and less interesting or worthwhile or intelligent. They're just assembled in a different way. Eventually, we reach a, a completely free associative mode of thought, 
and we fall through the hallucination line. We start to hallucinate before we start to dream. And then we fall asleep, and, uh, and, and we're dreaming intermittently, of course. And sleep thought is fascinating, as waking thought is, but sleep thought is radical, low-focus, low-spectrum thought. And we need to understand the entire spectrum, whereas most people in the field seem to think they can get away with studying the top edge only, which is leaving the vast uh, 99.9% of the human mind in the, uh, in the garbage. Well, yeah. I mean, it's probably no coincidence that a whole group uh, of thinkers who are pretty Apollonian in, in their daily focus and their orientation to knowledge uh, think about consciousness in very Apollonian terms. They're not thinking about all these kind of unstructured Dionysian late in the day kinds of thoughts. But let me just backtrack. I, I want to I ask you what the word understand means in this context. And let me amplify that a little bit too. I mean, I could sit here and, and probably would sit here and make the case that, you know, the questions that were, were puzzling Leibniz um, hundreds of years later are every bit as puzzling that that you know um, in terms of even understanding some basic you know qua what's called qualia what I think you call the day to day experience of feeling reality um, we're, we're no closer to understanding how three pounds of tissue um, comes up with that uh, than we were, than than Leibniz was hundreds of years ago that we're like when you say understand <laughs> consciousness what what actually are you suggesting. Well, there are two really uh, – there are two separate questions. One is what we mean by consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, how it works, what it means to have a mind, what it means to think, um, how we can understand the radical difference in people's minds. Some people approach problems in radically different ways from other people, obviously, and lead their lives in very different ways. Um, there's another question, which is a question of physiology and at a ba more basic level of anatomy and biochemistry. That is, how, to, how, to, how do the cells of the brain in the context of the nervous system and the body in general produce uh, qualia, as you say, qualitative states of mind, uh, uh, mental images and thought in general? Um, there are two separate questions. What does consciousness mean? And how does how is consciousness produced? Although they're, they're separate to you, they're not separate to every thinker about consciousness, right? Churchland, a materialist, would say, "No, nope, we just don't know the full story of that brain symphony." But when we do, we will have a completely material explanation of this, which won't require another set of thinking about that. Well, with all due respect to Churchland, she's way off. It's just not true. <laughs> um, the fact is uh, music is, is a topic that's different from the construction of tubas and trombones and violins. Uh, violin making is a, is a deep and complex art in its own right, but uh, mastering violin making is not going to teach you how to play uh, the Mendelssohn Concerto. They're two separate topics, and they're closely allied. Obviously, they have one has a lot to do with the other, and they both have to do with sound and beautiful sound and so forth. But it makes no sense to say we won't need, uh, we won't need composers anymore <laughs> when, we, when we have an adequate knowledge of violins. In fact, violins are immensely complicated objects, and there's a lot we don't understand. Not a lot, but there are things we don't understand about them. Um, but that's uh, completely separate. We could master violin making to such an extent that, that robots could 
produce Stradivarii, and that wouldn't change the fact that what they're doing has nothing to do with composing music and mm -hmm. is not musical per se. So I, I, I don't – the analogy maybe sounds closer than it is. They're certainly not equivalent, but the point is that virtually all the areas of knowledge that we approach are hierarchical intellectually. We can approach uh, something at a, a fundamental scientific level, at an even more fundamental mathematical level, or we can approach something in terms of the organization that we recognize and understand at uh, a more or less ordinary day-to-day -day level of human psychology, which uh, is the level that fascinates me. And uh, however much uh, we know about the brain, we're learning more all the time, tremendously important, and it's certainly not irrelevant. It couldn't possibly be irrelevant to psychology and philosophy of mind, but it's not the same thing as. I want to know all about it, and I think everybody in the field of philosophy of mind and Cognitive psychology wants to know as much about the brain and human physiology as he can, but that's different from saying that the two topics are the same. They absolutely aren't. I want to, just because you brought up the thing about musical instruments, I want to play a, a clip for you. This is from a program which I'm guessing you don't watch. It's called Mozart in the Jungle. Um, and, and in this clip, this just, just happened this season, within the last few months, this was aired, uh, this very um, uh, creative and romantic conductor, Rodrigo, uh, is brought over to Japan by uh, uh, and kind of IT magnate in Fukumoto, where he's introduced to a robot uh, who's known as WAM, W-A-M, which stands for Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And one of the things, so the robot, the robot has, been, has been studying, has been ingesting uh, everything about Mozart. And the robot has then been assigned the job of finishing Mozart's Requiem, which was not completed before Mozart's death. And the, the robot's and Fukumoto's position is that the, the robot can do this because the robot knows more about Mozart than anybody. It knows more uh, about the kinds of choices, note to note, chord to chord, uh, that that Mozart made, and, and so the robot's robot's in a good position to to do this. So you're going to hear Mr. Fukumoto, you're going to hear the robot, and you're going to hear Rodrigo, uh, this very excitable uh, conductor, uh, having a conversation. Maestro, allow me to introduce you to the composer who wrote the completed Mozart's Requiem. This is Wham. Maestro Rodrigo, what a great honor. <laughs> oh, hi. Hi. What's your name? My name is Wham. It stands for Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's programmed with all of the work that Mozart has written, as well as the recording and videotapes of every single performance ever done of Mozart's work. I mean, most importantly, Wham can learn. It has a proprietary deep learning algorithm, which allows it to make connections that even we can't see. That's why it was able to complete Mozart's Requiem so perfectly. Perfect. Come on, dog. Only Mozart can be perfect. Well, have you looked at it yet, Maestro? Oh, yes, Wham, yes. I, I, I glanced at it. It is how Mozart would have finished it, had he not died. I'm pleased you will conduct it after I conduct a short piece. Well, is he conduct? Just a little. I'm learning. I would like to learn from you. In particular, I would like to learn about what you call the blood. Oh, no, no, the blood, you, no, I'm not going to tell you about the blood because you have no blood, Wham. How, how am I going to do that? 
So throughout this series, uh, Rodrigo often talks about uh, musicians who play with the blood, as he says, which is, I think, uh, obvious, sort of viscerally connected in a capital R romantic sense to their art. Um, and and the, the robot has no blood. But beyond that, I think that what you would say is what the robot can do is learn everything about Mozart at a very high focus level. Uh, but what the robot can't do is drop down to low focus to that state of more instinctual, creative, free associative um, inspiration? Well, it's not quite what I'd say. I first wonder whether the ignorance in this thing is deliberate uh, <laughs> or, or accidental. Obviously, as we know, Mozart's reckoning was finished by his student, Dusmeyer. Nobody finds the the finish Im uh, bad. It's just that it's not very interesting. It's done in the style of Mozart, and Mozart never wrote a single measure in the style of Mozart <laughs> because every measure was new. Every new, every measure he invented something else. And the reason we don't now and won't ever be listening to music by robots is not because of any technical failure on the part of robots, but because robots have nothing to tell us. Uh, the fascinating thing about Mozart's Requiem is not the is not the score or the score secondarily. It's Mozart himself. Uh, you listen to Beethoven because Beethoven was uh, an an almost infinitely intriguing, fascinating, commanding personality. As was Mozart. The idea that Mozart is perfect is idiotic. We wouldn't listen to him if he were perfect. But uh, it's it's the composer. It's the human being expressing himself in a language in which he happens to be fluent. Uh, classical music, and in the case of Mozart, it's the it's the mind that has something to say that we care about. It isn't the particular arrangement of notes, which is why uh, Mozart's Requiem will never be any more finished than it already was. A couple of years, I guess, actually within the same year of Mozart's death, um, it was very simple to cannibalize Mozart's style and finish the Requiem. It was trivial, and any music student could do it. Any any undergraduate, any high school music student could do it. But insofar as no music student is Mozart, um, uh, even Beethoven writing in the style of Mozart when he wrote cadenzas for uh, Mozart's first uh, D minor piano concerto, when he composed it as a at a benefit, he he. he he uh, performed at a benefit for Mozart's widow. Those cadenzas are, don't don't rank with Mozart's own music or with Beethoven's own music. Beethoven copying Mozart can't possibly be as interesting as Beethoven being himself or Mozart being himself. I mean, they're they're fine cadenzas and they're always performed with the concerto. There's nothing wrong with them. But the point is that it's the it's the personality, it's the man behind the music that matters. Mm. So. I want to continue that idea too, and and to why you're so attracted to to creators um, in, t in terms of talking about consciousness. So one of the writers that you like uh, is Philip Roth. One of the things that Roth would say is that when you are creative, when you are creating things, when you are creating things, in his case, when I when I when he is writing fiction. Um, his mind can, in fact, function in a way that it can't the rest of the time, that there are all kinds of things that inhibit our thinking, laws, things are, you, you tend 
not to think about things that would be illegal to do unless you're the, that kind of person. You tend not to think in terms of doing things that would be highly immoral uh, unless you're that kind of person. Uh, that um, there are all kinds of constraints uh, on us and that as a fiction writer, he can think of and play out um, all kinds of things uh, in, in a way his consciousness is so much less limited that way. I don't know. What's your response to that? I have the highest respect for Roth, but it's complete nonsense. When I'm, <laughs> when I'm writing fiction, as in the novel 1939, or many stories published in commentary, which I seem to hear about, about 15,000 more times than anything else I publish, which is as much an index of the lack of interest in the other stuff as high interest in, in fiction. But at any rate, uh, fiction has has many more readers and better readers, it seems to me, than uh, certainly than computing or technology or stuff like that. But when I'm doing that kind of work, which is what comes naturally to me as opposed to computing, I use the same mind I always use. I, I, I've got to be in a relatively low focus frame of mind. Mm -hmm. That is, if I'm, if I'm all hunched up and rigidly focused and in the kind of mood that would make me really good at the SAT, analytic, mathematical part, whatever it is, I'm not going to find the words I want. Uh, the music is not going to emerge as I write it and uh, what, I, what I do is going to be no good. But on the other hand, I have one mind and it is a continuum. It's not as if I flip a switch and and stop being an X and start being a Y. Uh, Roth exists on the same continuum as everybody else. And if he thinks that uh, his use, he's using his mind in a fundamentally different way uh, when he's writing a novel than he does when he writes a memoir or, or, or splashes in his swimming pool up there wherever he is, um, <laughs> he's, he's wrong. And, and I say that with the greatest respect for Roth. I don't know of a, a writer I admire more a living writer I admire more than Philip Roth, um, but that doesn't make him – he doesn't necessarily know how his own mind is working. I think if he thought about it carefully, he'd have loads of things to tell us, but I don't think he ever has. Um, I'm talking to David Galartner right now. His newest book is The Tides of Mind, uh, oops, Uncovering the Spectrum uh, of Consciousness. We're going to have to take a break here pretty soon. And there's no way that I, I, we can summarize this book in, in the short amount of time that we have, and, and we shouldn't really uh, try. Although I, the one thing I want to touch on before we move on to some other stuff is um, – one of the major figures in this book, one of the people that you turn to is Freud. And Freud often doesn't get discussed by people who are trying to work out scientific theories of consciousness or philosophical models of consciousness. Although Freud in general seems to be undergoing a little bit of a rehabilitation uh, right at the moment. So uh, who's Freud to you? What, what, what use is he to you? Uh, Freud is the greatest philosopher of modern times, along with Wittgenstein, I mean, radically different man. I'm not comparing them, but uh, Freud is an incomparably uh, deep and imaginative thinker. Uh, not, not quite a scientist, although, I mean, he was a competent physician by the standards of his own day, but um, he talks so much about how he wants to be a scientist and he wants to be scientific. This is a dead giveaway. It's not the way his mind works. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's radically artistic in his approach to the world. If you look at the quarters in which he lived virtually his whole life in Vienna, they're crammed with 
statuettes, sculpture, artworks of all kinds, uh, ancient sculpture. Um, he, he, he wrote about the arts. He wrote about Leonardo. He wrote about Michelangelo. He was uh, uh, entranced by Rome, uh, by Italy generally. Well, it's true of a lot of Germans and Austrians, but the fact is he was an artist, a, a writer of genius, a brilliant, extraordinary writer, trapped in the wrong field. Uh, out of the needs of, of uh, respectability and the need to make a living and so forth. But um, what comes naturally to him is literature and philosophy. And that's the way I think of him and the way I read him. But, but I think beyond that, too, is, uh, um, at least for your purposes in this book, um, uh, well, I mean, depth psychology uh, was the, the term that was used at one point. The, the notion that part of our consciousness includes things of which we are not conscious uh, is, uh, once again, not necessarily part of the canonical thinking uh, when we think about philosophy of mind. Uh, well, Freud invented ideas that, uh, like the unconscious, like depth psychology in general, that we take for granted so much it's part of the wallpaper. I talk to my classes sometimes. Have you heard of this idea, of that idea? And of course, everybody knows what the unconscious is, but very few people know anything about Freud anymore. He's sort of been deliberately suppressed. Um, I mean, we suppress more important thought than we teach nowadays at our universities. But um, Freud created the psychology we take for granted today, um, an enormous imaginative leap. Um, he read Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the only his only forerunner, really. Uh, but he was radically different from Nietzsche, of course. He 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 gained greatly from his contact with real patients. Um, certainly, he was a, a physician, and he cared an enormous amount about what his patients were saying. The best, greatest listener in history he would spend every day listening, listening with meticulous care, and rarely opening his own mouth to uh, to the to the troubled. Uh, persons, mainly Jewish middle-class women of Vienna, but they had a lot to say. <laughs> and um, and by listening to them carefully, he was able to revolutionize our understanding of the mind uh, in such a way that, uh, we, again, we take it for granted. Uh, it's part of the thinking that we use uh, whenever we think about the mind, it, trying to think about the mind without understanding that there's such a thing as the unconscious, that dream thought is a continuation of waking thought, although there are, of course, uh, physiologists who don't see that. They're always, they're always uh, um, people to whom psychology does not come naturally or easily. But um, Freud's revolutionary work will never be will never become obsolete uh, any more than the work of a great novelist becomes obsolete uh, because he understood the human mind, the human personality, what it means to be a human being, uh, understood it so deeply and wrote about it so beautifully. Um, we, we're going to have to take a break or I'll get uh, in trouble. But I actually want to continue this conversation uh, just a little bit more on the other side of the break, uh, particularly uh, as regards Freud becoming obsolete or, or not so. We'll take a little break. We're talking to David Galertner uh, and uh, just hang with us.
All right, we're back. Uh, I'm down in the Yale Studios in New Haven uh, with David Galertner, uh, author of many books, most recently, The Tides of Mind, Uncovering the Spectrum of Consciousness. You know, I just want to stay for one second with this question of Freud and, and Freud becoming obsolete. Because obviously, in the history of intellect, you're right, Freud can never be obsolete. In, in our day-to-day lives, though, I mean, look, if I'm having trouble sleeping right now, um, uh, and I try to get any help for it, I'm going to be steered towards what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, right? They're going to try to identify it, – it's, it's going to be a pretty computational model of my mind or brain that gets addressed uh, by the healthcare system. Nobody's going to pay for or put up with me going to any kind of deep psychoanalysis <laughs> about why I can't sleep or whatever the hell my other problem is. I mean I would, I would argue that our society has run out of patience anyway, not only with Freud but with people. Uh, that would be true, except – well, it is true and it's exactly what Freud said. Freud said uh, people are not going – psychoanalysis is not for the ages. It will – it's too expensive and it takes too long. Um, as he said in psychoanalysis, uh, terminable and interminable. He said I, it's, it's, it's not a practical option to go on seeing patients for years and years. Um, he believed that it would be replaced by drugs. He didn't see other kinds of psychotherapy being terribly important. He said they'll give you a pill, and that's what they do. I think uh, if, you look at, if you look at people who have trouble sleeping or who have actual sleep disorders, the vast majority of them uh, are, 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 are treated either earlier or later with sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. And uh, although sleeping pills have a bad name, they're, you know, they're like aspirin. They're part of the normal repertoire of, of drugs that are prescribed for people who have problems and they uh, it's uh, Freud but this is exactly what Freud said Freud said um, I I'm learning about the mind and the things that I learn are not going to become obsolete but as a method of treatment psychoanalysis is a flash in the pan it's going to uh, teach us certain things, and then it's going to be uh, it's going to be overtaken by science it was a huge ideologist of science, a great believer in scientific methods and psychology and psychiatry and and all allied topics. And uh, he foresaw this clearly, and he was right. So I, I have to ask you about this. Uh, you were being eyed for a while by the Trump administration as a possible science advisor. Um, first of all, tell us, did you wind up having a meeting with President Trump? Um, I did, yeah. This was at an, at an early point, most of this happened before uh, before the actual beginning of the administration, and I think um, uh, before the uh, head-on clash with congressional reality, which uh, which taught people to look at things rather differently in terms of what could be done. I, I think that's just my editorializing. But yeah, mm-hmm. I did meet him, um, not in Washington, but in Trump Towers. When I was down in Washington, I met with his people. Um, but those were early days, and um, I don't think they had developed a, uh, a grasp yet. Um, but they were fast learners, to what, say the least. What would you have done? Is well, first of all, had he offered you the job, would you have taken it? I really don't know. I was um, I was more disappointed than I expected to be when the whole thing dried up, mm-hmm. uh, because I had mixed feelings about it. And I don't know that I don't know that I really could have. It would have been uh, it, it would have been well for for various personal reasons. It would have been hard, but um, I would have tried to. I mean, I 
it certainly is an exciting position. If I could have arranged things, I would have done it. I don't know if I would have succeeded in doing it. I sort of doubt it, but but I would have tried. I would have tried, and the whole thing was fascinating, even even as far as it went. What was fascinating about it? Tell me what was fascinating. Um, I think being being inside the White House or just the executive branch is something that any American has to find fascinating. Any mm-hmm. American who doesn't live there or work there or see it every day. It's, um, it's fascinating because of the history that took place there at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and it's fascinating because of the temper of the people who work there. They're uh, – uh, they work. Uh, they work at a, a higher energy point than most people do. The place is energizing in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're excited naturally. They think that what they're doing has historic importance, which it which it does. Um, and 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 working at people who are dialed up to such a high level of uh, of brain function, so to speak. It uh, has to be exciting. So, uh, but the and and the history has to be exciting. So there are two ways it must be exciting, no matter how uh, ambivalent you might be about the position itself. Well, so you were that rare public intellectual who also publicly supported the candidacy of Donald Trump. Uh, how are you feeling about him these days? Well, I, I have to say he. He wasn't my pick among the Republicans, and I think that's true for 100 percent of the Republican uh, writers, intellectuals, whatever. I doubt if there was a single one who who picked him as his, as his favorite candidate. Um, how I how I think of him as president, um, I think um, I think he's done on on the whole uh, first rate to superb job. I wish he didn't talk us so much. I wish he didn't. You know, I wish he would. Get off the social media and Twitter, which I'm often accused of being the co-inventor of with uh, Eric Freeman um, at Yale. Not all that many years ago, um, we all wish. I mean, I we all. I guess Republicans, conservatives all over the world wish he'd shut up. Um, he only hurts himself and damages the dignity of himself and of the presidency. But um, a man is who he is and, you know, you get the whole package. Um, I think he's done a marvelous job. And uh, if he'd done nothing more than moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, uh, he would be remembered uh, as somebody who is capable of acting on principle in a way that's almost unheard of in modern – in the modern American presidency. You realize, as you say all this, public radio listeners all over the place are hurling themselves. Yeah, I've heard walls. that. Right. <laughs> Look, I, I, my best friends are all NPR listeners, and I am, I am one also. I, I live in, I live at Yale. After all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by by leftists. Democrats are nine to one or ten to one in the city of New Haven. That's the world I live in, and um, I'm accustomed to dealing with people who are wrong about everything, but who are wonderful people in other ways. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, right? Well, can, that's life. That's life. Can I ask you this? Just setting ideology aside, to me, and I haven't met him. You have. Uh, to me, he seems kind of stupid. I mean, he seems good, like his mind is a kind <laughs> of blunt object that doesn't deal well with subtlety, uh, that doesn't ratchet up up focus very well. I think it's sort of in a down focus state most of the time. It's very instinctual. Uh, I, I don't know. Is there a part of his intellect that I'm not grasping somehow? Yeah, I think about ninety eight percent. He's he he operates instinctively a lot of the time, as we all do. I mean, he's got instincts, of course. I don't know anybody who doesn't offhand. Um, he's not an intellectual. He's not 
he's not a reader of books. He's but very few presidents are, after all. And I don't think we've done very well with the ones who have been. Um, he's. Uh, I only talked to him in my whole life, well under an hour. So it's not like we're 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 best buddies. My impression was of an exceptionally sharp guy, uh, somebody who's very bright beyond the beyond the shadow of a doubt, but also somebody who's very sharp in conversation, uh, articulate, an extraordinarily focused listener who picks up on nuances of syllables and um, and says what's on his mind, which is uh, he's lucky to be able to do. I don't know many people who, with the best of intentions, are able to say what's on their minds. So uh, I respect him. Uh, I admire him. I wish he would conduct the office in a different way. But as I say, I, you know, we, we get what we get. And um, I think that he has uh, been a successful and a brave president. I think he will be remembered as a courageous president who is willing to stand up for what he believed in, stand up for principle, do what he thought was right, and damn the New York Times, and for that matter, his own supporters. I want to read uh, you something that you wrote uh, uh, in a kind of correspondence with a writer at The Atlantic. Uh, you did this kind of fascinating thing where you, you sent them 20 ideas. The first idea was letting toxic partisanship heal. The readiest replacement nowadays for lost traditional religion is political ideology. But a citizen with faith in a political position instead of rational belief is a potential da- disaster for democracy. Um, first of all, aren't you a person with faith in a political position? No, I think I'm an old-fashioned backroom Republican. I, um, the Republican Party is not my life. Conservatism is not what I live and breathe. It's not as if all my friends are conservatives and Republicans. And I, it's um, important to me, as many things are, as an American citizen it has to be, but it's certainly not as important to me as many other things. So no, I'm not, I'm not at all a, a, a faith-based Republican. I'm just a Republican, as many of my friends are and many of my friends are Democrats. Um, When you meet an ideologue, it's a person who has allowed a particular school of thought to become his life, to dictate uh, his attitudes towards virtually everything. Um, Most of my cultural attitudes are are more uh, leftist than rightist just because of who I am. I mean, I'm a writer and a painter. The things I care about um, are art. Uh, I care about religion. Um, I don't care about technology or science all that much, but I don't think that's a bar to people uh, making contribution to fields and if they can, if they can be useful. But um, the, the, it, it is assumed that a Republican or a conservative has certain attitudes towards, uh, I don't know, animals, creatures, the architecture, the arts. I was on the the National Endowment for the Arts Council in the, when was it, the last decade or sometime. I've had a little to do with official Washington the arts. But um, I, I don't have any interest in aligning with the uh, official conservative description but I could say the same of most of my conservative friends. Um, I don't know very many conservative ideologues. Uh, but maybe leftists think they don't know many leftist <laughs> ideologues. It's uh, possibly just <laughs> just an artifact of who you are. 
All right. We're talking to David Gallertner. We have to take one last break here. We'll come back. This hour is flying by, at least for me. Uh, And we will be back. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has no consciousness of being a fish. Our intern is Garnet McLaughlin. The part of Bill Curry was played by William Blake. On tomorrow's show, our salute to slime. And now, back to Colin. And we're talking with David Gallertner uh, down here in New Haven. His new book is The Tides of Mind, Uncovering the Spectrum of Consciousness. He's the author of many books uh, besides that, uh, both nonfiction and fiction. Um, so, yeah, I thought here in the time that we have left, it might be fun. You, you did this thing where the uh, this guy from the Atlantic uh, asked you for some ideas, um, some of your ideas. I think you surprised him by sending him 20 uh, ideas uh, and – um, and a lot of them were pretty fascinating. I know this isn't uh, something that you've walked around remembering, so I'm, but I'm going to throw a few of them at, at you and just see uh, what you do with them now. Well, one of your ideas is beauty is objective. Uh, tell me about beauty being objective. Um, this, this comes up as a job uh, – uh, on the job sort of thing because uh, undergraduates come programmed with certain ideas in their mind that they repeat – uh, as if they were you know, holy dogma, beauty is subjective, and one has to keep in mind that the striking, startling thing about beauty is the is the is a staggering degree of agreement. There is the fact that the best recording of a Beethoven quartet that I can find is by the Tokyo Quartet, or that um, the 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 highest price ever paid for Van Gogh was paid in the Orient somewhere, Japan, maybe the Philippines. The fact that so much of the arts clearly transcends international boundaries, which it didn't have a chance to do before the 20th century, has not been noticed. It's remarkable. It's amazing. It's exactly the opposite of what anybody predicted or expected. People should think about it. They don't. Um, uh, take a chance, damn it. And then you talked about the, the new colleges here at Yale, and, uh, and, and the, which, you, which you, I think, like. But you say, but if Yale had turned on its brain, it could have had quads and something exciting or, and new uh, instead of something that tries so hard to be boring and old. Why not build a college with four separate quads stacked up like a pile of books, each half overlapping the one beneath? So you, you think basically art and creativity and architecture just don't take enough chances. Yeah, and it's particularly disappointing. Uh, yeah, I have to say I don't like the new colleges oh, you don't at like all. Them, I, so. I, I, they're painful to look at. And I, <laughs> I, I think um, Yale tried too hard to do the right thing. It, mm. Students like quads and they like the old colleges more than the, uh, the so-called modern architecture colleges in the 1950s. Um, people don't want to live in Morrison styles, not because of the style of the architecture, but because they don't have good places to play football and stuff like that. So, and the rooms are all a pain to live in. And uh, and that's true. I mean, they're not well designed. But the um, it used to be that Yale was a showcase, and it still is to some extent, for the, for the architectural cutting edge. Um, there's a new building, a fairly new building for the business school by Norman Foster, which is a striking building. Um, there are still striking new buildings going up at Yale, but uh, whenever we take a step backwards, it's not that uh, Robert A. M. Stern is incapable of doing something striking and original. He's not at all. But 
uh, those in those colleges, he was told, be as boring as you possibly can, and he succeeded beyond our wildest imagination. But Yale made a name for itself by being interesting, by taking... Not by being not by being reactionary, but by moving forward. But you have to think a little bit about what a quad is too, and what it exists for. I, I think we think it exists for exists as a way of being public space that thrusts together people who might otherwise be uh, uh, siloing themselves in, in study carols or, or highly specialized graduate research. Um, absolutely true. And, and, and some of the quads that I outlined in that piece, I don't, I, I don't remember most of them. One of them had, a, had an indoor swimming pool in the center of it. One of them had some sort of garden or stuff. I, I don't know exactly. But that's absolutely true. And if I had designed the colleges, I was not, on the, I was not a finalist, I have to say. It, they, they would have had a quad. I mean, I've been an undergraduate here, as a matter of fact, as you have. And quads are tremendously important. A lot of colleges, not just at Yale. So sure, a college needs them. A college needs to be designed with the uh, comfort and experience of the undergraduates in mind. But that doesn't mean that it has to be uh, recycled cliches that would have been boring. When the original colleges were put up in the early decades of the 20th century, um, and, and those were already, of course, carefully done copies of, of architecture at, at Cambridge and Oxford. So a second recycling is too much. Um, go back to Oxford or Cambridge and look again or do something new. Don't try and recycle the recycling. It's just silly. I do think quads give me hope. Well, I, I think one of the diseases of modernity is this constant desire, this, this viewing of sequestration as kind of a luxury item that, that's worth craving. You know, I, I always think about hotels, you know, the kinds of hotels that Mark Twain and P.T. Barnum would have stayed in when they were in New York in the 1880s kind of had, often had not very great rooms. I mean, I'm sure Mark Twain could afford a great room, but a lot of the hotels had not really great rooms and really good public spaces. The notion being that you didn't spend very much time in your room, you should go down into the public space and be talking to other people, exchanging ideas. There was no internet. Um, so so people went into those spaces to to learn about each other and learn about the things that other people knew. And I do feel as though that's something that we're getting worse and worse at, unless we think the internet internet's a good place to do that. Well, I think that's absolutely true. A quad in a college is a is a human magnet, and it draws people out whether they intend to go out or not. I you may not be planning to waste the afternoon playing football, but. Um, if your if your friends are out there, you just happen to be walking past, and you know somebody, and you talk for an hour. It's the, it's it's a it's the best part of college for most people. So and and architecture contributes to it. Architecture is important. A quad doesn't just happen by accident. It happens because an architect decides to put it there. It's one of the most important inventions in architecture. We need them. But we didn't do them successfully in our two new colleges. Right. We might need them even more, I, I think, because, I mean, you know, one of the arguments you make in your book is that we're in bodies. Um, and increasingly, we interact in a way that does not involve our bodies, in which we are essentially not in our bodies. If we're tweeting, emailing, Snapchatting, we're not in our bodies anymore. It seems to me that these kinds of spaces, whether it's the public rooms of a hotel or a quad or anything else that makes the bodies get together, there's some kind of – there's a lot of information, I assume, we're getting from each other's – physical presence, our bodily presences. Absolutely. We, we built the first Twitter stream here at Yale in the mid-1990s. Um, the, the, the first Twitter message, the first thing that was outside of software that, that was ever put on the stream uh, drove me across the room. I was so surprised <laughs> when somebody 
put a, a photo of her engagement ring. She just become engaged. And instead of putting a note about the next meeting to discuss this aspect of the software, she said, look, I've got a new ring. And a lot of people saw it who would never conceivably have seen it otherwise. And it was something striking. But but to use uh, social media as they are used today um, as a substitute for, for personal encounters is obviously a recipe for disaster. What could be more? Nothing could be more obvious. You know, if you told that to somebody in 1850, he'd say, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. And and everybody said that in the early days of uh, of the iPhone and, 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 and when Facebook and Twitter were becoming really big. I, I said it again, we were involved in inventing it, but we never intended. It seemed absurd. It would have seemed absurd to me to say that the, the the, the, the largest human drive, which is to be with other human beings, the most uh, compelling human drive, the greatest human compulsion, certainly among young people, but I think among all human beings, is not to be lonely. And that that could possibly be replaced by laziness plus an iPhone is staggering. Um, we don't have to do it this way. Um, I think it comes from mainly from children to whom nobody is paying attention. I think if we paid a little attention to our children and told them put away the damn phone and go out and roam around or read a book or something, but if nobody's paying attention to children, they're going to take the easiest path naturally as any creature does. We're going to have to stop there uh, because uh, I've only got a few seconds left here and uh, David Galantner does not uh, answer questions uh, in seconds. Nor (laughs) should he. Nor should you. No, I don't want you to. I'm not – I don't want you to change. Uh, Well, there's some things I'd love to change about you, but I think it's too late. (laughs) Uh, The Tides of Mind is the new book uncovering the spectrum of consciousness. Uh, Definitely. uh, You'll never think about your own thoughts the same way if you read this book. So consider that.